listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. Romans 3, starting in verse 5, says, If our unrighteousness brings God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? So did you hear that? So if our, if our being evil or our being unrighteous, our being bad, somehow brings God's righteousness, brings glory, what should we say? Is that a good thing? It turns out that it's going to be no. But uh, continue in verse 5. And so here's Paul's argument, which is a little confusing to follow, so pay attention closely, that, um, that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us, question mark. And he says, I'm using a human argument. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And then some might argue, if my falseness, so if your lies or your falseness enhances God's truthfulness, so if somehow you're telling a lie about God or something, like maybe a healing that really didn't happen, but you're lying, and, but it brings God glory. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, that, let's see, I'll read it again. Someone might argue, if my falseness enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still in condemnation as a sinner? So you are in condemnation. Um, why not say, as some slanderous claim, that we say, let us do evil that good may result. And then it says, their condemnation is just. So basically, in this very rhetorical passage that I, I had to read again and again and kind of get the wording right, Paul is very clearly saying that the, that the ends do not justify the means, that doing evil so that good may result is a horrible thing. That is, a, it's not right. In the end, it brings condemnation upon those that think like that. And so let's pray this morning. That's kind of the bigger point of today's lesson. Um, and so let's pray. God, we do worship you this morning. We thank you for this uh, food that is here. God, we do ask your blessing upon it and that, that we as a community would um, take you seriously and learn about you and your ways, learn about the people, the Christians that have gone before us as, as this month we're studying church history. But God, we ask your, your favor here. God, we ask that you yourself may be glorified. And God, as we pray and think about this lesson that the ends do not justify the means, God, I, I pray that you would show us that truth more clearly and allow us to receive it from you. So we, we pray, we worship you, Jesus, and it's in your name. Everybody screams! Amen. Um, I used to work construction. Anybody else work construction, like framing or trim carpentry? Yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, you get your, you know, work with your hands. And there's always opportunities to cut corners when you're working construction. Um, you could do things in such a way that, you know, you just have more power uh, 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 or more bigger, badder tools. Do it faster. Do it quicker. Somehow cut a corner in such a way as like maybe you're doing crown molding and instead of using real wood, use the plastic crown molding. Or instead of doing uh, hardwood floors, you use a laminate floor. You cut costs. You cut time. Um, I was on some websites just trying to figure out how long it takes to build the average house that's being built in the United States right now. And the average house is usually what some would consider a cookie cutter home in a, in a subdivision. And they're all the kind of similar houses or you know, one of five types of houses in a subdivision. And I was looking at some websites and I went to contractor talk.com, which is probably a website you go to all the time. Um, and it, they said two to three months maximum for building a new home. If everything goes right, you know, you pour the foundation, you put up the trusses, you put the roof on, you have the roofers come, you have a plumber come, you have an electrician come, two to three months to build a house. Isn't that, does anyone else surprised about how fast 
that is. And so if everything's right, and if you're, you're building houses to make money, and you, you need to build them fast to make money, um, that's just how it works. And so are we cutting corners in such a way, um, is the construction business cutting corners in such a way that maybe we'll pay for later? Are the houses that are being built today, are they going to last like houses that lasted, like my house, I live in Manitou, my house is over 100 years old, it was built in the 1890s, it's still standing, it's still doing great, there's a lot of craftsmanship about it, and I guarantee you that it didn't take three months or two months to build that house, it probably took years to build that house, and so are the houses we're building today, are they going to stand, you know, 150 years from now, or are the corners that we're cutting are they not going to stand that long? I, I don't know. And so the, the, this idea of, you know, do the ends justify the mean? Does the, is the end of just building a quick, fast house, is that justifiable in, in cutting potentially all the corners that we're cutting? Here's another example from the, uh, uh, the secular world, I guess. I read this book called Fast Food Nation. Anybody read that book by Eric? Oh, a couple of people, sweet. Uh, Eric Slosser. And he argues that, that we as Americans... Um, when we want food, we want it quick and we want it cheap. And so we go to fast food restaurants and I'm pointing the finger at you. I'm pointing the finger at myself. I go to fast food. I love the, anybody else love the dollar menu? It's like all this food for a dollar. It's awesome. But this book kind of argues that maybe we're cutting corners in such a way that we're, that we just want our food really cheap and we want it really fast. And so maybe we're cutting corners as a nation and we're going to have to pay for that later with uh, maybe our bodies, not getting the nutrients and the nutrition and we're eating junk food that's quick and that's really cheap and so maybe we're gonna have to pay for that later and so the quick end of i'm hungry i'm rushing i'm running around there's there's uh, planes to catch and bills to pay and uh the new job's a hassle and so you just want to eat quick and fast and and so you do and then but maybe there's that there's this longer end in mind of, you know, paying for eating all that fast food later in your 50s and your 60s that your that our bodies aren't meant to eat food that's that quick and that fast and that cheap. I don't know. It's just a thought. And it's a, it's a thought from the secular idea of the world. But this is the Mill Sunday School, and we are here to learn about spirituality and God and the truths of Scripture. So those two examples. In a second, I'm going to give you a discussion question. So some of you that like to think a little bit longer can think about it and before we discuss it. The, the discussion question is going to be, how do we cut corners with our spiritual lives. Like, you know, so much of American culture is saying, you know, the ends do justify the means as long as, you know, you get it and you, you get it quick, that's, that's good. And so it doesn't really matter how you get there. And if we take some of those lessons into our spiritual life, well, then that's not a good thing. And so we'll discuss that in a, question, in, in a second. Um, but first, look at the new, this is the new Sunday school look. Isn't it beautiful? It's got snow on it because today was cold. Uh, is anybody else cold this morning? Did you see all the, did anybody else, did, did you get here early enough to see all the hot air balloons? Did anybody see a hot air balloon on the way? It's like, I don't know what they're all doing, but that's pretty cool. Um, so anyways, it's, we're coming into the fall. We'll have new uh, bookmarks made. And so this month's topic, by the way, Sunday school takes months per top, topics per month. This month's topic is church history. We'll get to that in just a second with uh, this idea of, the ends don't justify the means, and we're going to talk about the Protestant Reformation and hopefully tie some of these loose strings that I, I will present today. Um, so that's today uh, and all this month, Protestant Reformation, and then the book, 
bookmarks will get printed soon, so we'll know the topics for the rest of the next six months and into the fall. But um, if you're newish to the Mill Sunday School, if this is your first time, welcome. There, there should be cards on all the tables that uh, have a new a first-time visitor card. If they're not, that you can go out to the lobby, and the, the nice people there will give you one. You can fill it out with a little bit of information um, about yourself, and we'll give you a gift. The gift is a CD that we recorded on Friday night uh, a long time ago. It's some worship music. You could have that for free. So do that if you want to. And uh, other announcement is um, uh, that next week there will be no Mill Sunday School. <gasps> I know. And it's weird because it's like, why is there no Sunday School next month? It's uh, next week. Excuse me. There's, there's not, it's not a holiday. What's going on? Well, um, it's our leaders retreat. And so the, the people that are on the Mill Sunday School leadership, we are going to go up into the mountains and pray, um, uh, talk about direction and future discussion, things like that. And so it's our chance as Mill leaders to go up in the mountains. And so the way that we have to do that is we have to cancel Sunday School so we could actually have a little retreat. So um, and it's kind of a way of like us um, giving our leaders the week off and because I think they deserve it. I mean, some of them are here at like 6 this morning making you pancakes and eggs and bacon. Let's give them a hand. So, yeah. And so next week, uh, if you don't remember, you'll come in and you'll be like, dude, I had pancakes last week. Where's the pancakes? Well, there, there'll be no Mill Sunday School next week. Write it down. Tell your friends so that they don't show up. But then Sunday School will resume right after that. And we apologize that there's no Sunday School, but we don't really apologize because it, our, it's for our leaders. They need the, the week off, and, and it'll be a great time for us to pray, think about direction. So, like I said, that discussion question, here it is. Um, discuss this question, how can we be tempted to cut corners in our spiritual life thinking that the end is all that matters? And I'll let you kind of develop that and think about that. You could be as personal as you want and say that I've, you know, cut corners in this way in my spiritual life, or you could just talk about more general things and say we could all be tempted to cut corners in this or that way. So discuss it for like three minutes, and then we'll pass around some mics and get some big ideas from some of you that want to share. Cool? Cool. All right. So, so discuss. Ready, get set, go. All right. Does anybody, I think we have some mics and they're going to get passed around. Yeah, there they are. So raise your hand, get their attention. If you have something to say that um, maybe we would all like to hear um, according to ways in which we could be tempted to cut corners in our spiritual life, thinking that an end is all that matters. Anybody want to get us started? Don't make me say Bueller. I will. I'll say it. I'll say it. Yes. Thank you, John. Okay. One of the things that our table had pointed out is we are in an I-25 society. We like to go from point A to point B as fast as possible. With that being said, it's very tempting as Christians to think that, hey, all I have to do is just say the sinner's prayer, and I'm going to be saved. I don't have to go to church. don't have yeah. to read a Bible. don't have to actually do anything. Just pray the prayer, and I'm good. Like a cheap grace. Yeah. They were tempted to believe that chief, the end, if, if just getting to heaven is all that matters, then just saying a prayer will get us there, supposedly. Then we don't really have to live our lives according to anything, a, a cheap grace. Sure, that's, that's tempting to believe. Yeah, William. We, we, uh, we had a couple things. Um, my partner, she said that... Uh, um, We worry a lot about introducing people to Christ and then 
we kind of let them go and go have fun with Jesus on your own instead of spending time with them Our and walking with them. Yeah. Because that takes a lot of time, energy. Sure. And uh, we also talked about how we have a tendency to be excited about the gifts that come with the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and not really have the intimacy with the Holy Spirit that's that rock foundation sure. for our life. Yeah. And we're real interested in, in the house that everybody can see. I know mm-hmm. I am. Yeah. And I struggle with that, that it's, it's hard to learn to rest on the rock instead of just be like, look how tall I am. <laughs> He's pretty tall, too. Well, that's a more, <laughs> more of an analogy. Like, <laughs> the stuff that you... I'm sorry. It's all good, Joseph. That, that's why no one shares, because they start talking, and then I make fun of them. And it's like, I'm not talking, no way. It's fun. It's fun playing with you. <laughs> anyway, so that's what we talked about. It's good. Thank you, William. Anybody else? I have a few ideas that I wrote down, but I don't want to uh, say them if, if some of you have some of the thoughts that I was going to say, because it'd be cool if we heard from you. Anybody else? Bueller. 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 All right, here's the ones that I found. Um, we say that we believe in the Bible, but if you, uh, we say we believe in the Bible, we believe in reading the Bible, but if you look at percentages of Christians who say they're Christians that have actually read the Bible, it's very small. Something like less than 10% of people who say they're Christians and they believe in the Bible haven't read the whole Bible. Um, We say we believe in prayer, but maybe we don't pray as often or as much as we think we should if we really believe that we do believe in prayer. Um, We we say things like, I'll pray for you, man. Like, my grandma's sick. And you say, oh, I'll pray for her. But do you pray for her? Sometimes. sometimes. So the, the end of just saying you're praying for someone is like, oh, I'll pray for you. And that's the end in of itself that, oh, you're, you're comforted in knowing that I'll pray for you, that, that I just say that I'm praying for you, but maybe the means aren't there that you're actually praying for them. Um, I wrote down, we think theology is important, but uh, often we don't study it. We think that um, to like this month's topic of church history, we think that that's important, but the church at large usually doesn't study such things. And so um, that's kind of the Sunday school is, is, you know, part of what Sunday school does is study things that you often won't get in a sermon. This is more of a school. This is more of like college, Christian college in a lot of ways. So thank you for being here. Um, let's continue now with the actual topic this morning of, of getting into church history. And I figured we should probably preface our Protestant Reformation church history with what came right before that, which was the Middle Ages. How many of you were here? I think it was in May when we talked about the Middle Ages. Anybody? Yeah, we talked about the Crusades, talked about the Black Death. We talked about uh, um, things like why the Middle Ages is called the Middle Age. And it's called the Middle Ages because it's in the middle of two things. At the beginning, you have the Roman Empire. There's the Eagle and the SPQR, which stands for Senate Populists, Romanus, Senate, and the people of Rome. And so Rome was this big, awesome, mighty empire, worldly empire, that then fell, which started the Middle Ages. And so at the end of the Middle Ages, somewhere in between 350-ish is where it started, and 1500-ish is where the Middle Ages ended, um, at the end of the Middle Ages we have the rebirth, the, the Renaissance, the Latin word for rebirth, uh, the coming out of um, the Middle Ages. It's often called the Dark Ages. Does the Dark Ages sound fun to you? 
No, it sounds dark. It sounds bad. There's things um, like the Black Death and the Crusades that happened and um, heresy trials, witch hunts. Lots of bad stuff happened in the Middle Ages. Maybe some good stuff too, but overall it's given the name the Middle Ages because it's in the middle of two awesome things. And it's given the name Dark Ages because it was kind of a dark period of history. People in the Middle Ages um, would take the old Roman ruins like the old Roman roads that spread all over uh, what is today Europe and um, the northern Africa. They took the old Roman roads. They took the bricks. I mean, talk about cutting corners. They took the bricks from the Roman road to make their houses with. I mean, instead of doing it the right way and making new bricks to make a house, they would take the bricks from the Roman road at Roman roads and, and make their own houses. And so they were literally cutting themselves off from the rest of the world. They were literally taking the road away and so cutting themselves off from trade or from news or from what's going on in the rest of the world. A very dark time in history, I imagine, of thinking, you know, looking around and seeing these old Roman ruins and thinking, man, why can't we build anything like that now? These awesome, this awesome empire that, that we just have the skeleton of is all that's left. And, and so there was, it was just a bad time to live in. Here's a picture of, uh, of a woodcut of the bubonic plague or the Black Death. Um, the Black Death killed upwards, this is an upper estimate, of 60% of Europe's population throughout the Middle Ages. 60%. Remember like a couple years ago when the swine flu hysteria hit and everybody's like, oh my gosh, we can't go to Mexico. Everybody's dying. And then it's like, oh, we can't do anything. Everybody's got swine. How many people actually died? Like in the hundreds? This is like 60, like six out of 10 people died of the bubonic plague. I mean, talk about like hysteria. Talk about an age before medical um, um, ideas of bacteria. That's, by the way, how the bubonic plague traveled through this bacteria. And, and so just this age in which it, the bubonic plague would strike one town, but not another. One family and not another. Bad times. Um, here's a picture of medieval torture devices. Um, torturing people in the name of Jesus, supposedly, because maybe they were a witch, or maybe they were a heretic, or maybe they believed differently than you did, and so you would torture them and make them confess, make them uh, recant what they said. And so these heresy trials happen in the Middle Ages. Lots and lots of superstition and um, total lack, maybe not total, but a very we would look at it and just say a total lack of education. The literacy rate in the Middle Ages was less than 10%. Less than 10% of the the population could read, whereas today in the United States, it's less than uh, a percent can't read. And so our literacy rate is over 99% of adults can read and write. Back then it was 10%. So the 90% of the population could not read or write. And they did not have books because, for the most part, because books, uh, this is right before the printing press would be invented, books were handwritten books. And so if you had a book, it would literally be worth like your life or I don't know, because it took a lifetime to um, hand copy one. And so it was, its worth was so much. And so there would maybe be a Bible per town. And of course, no one would open it because it was too holy of a book and you might get dust on it. And so people didn't read the Bible. People in the Middle Ages just learned from, the, they came to church on Sundays and the, the church service would be in Latin and they didn't speak Latin. If they were in Germany, it would be an old German that they spoke. And so they'd come to a church service and it would all be in Latin. Can you imagine if I was just speaking another language right now, 
And you were all just politely looking at me, and you all just politely left when I said amen and closed in prayer. That, that's what it would, there's like no understanding of the things of God as far as we know them, and reading the Bible uh, for yourself. It was a time of um, very, people were very gullible. They would believe anything because because someone else would tell them. And so that's, so we're leading up into this idea of indulgences. And the indulgences, by definition, uh, are the remission of a temporal punishment for sin after its guilt has been given. And, and so what it basically is, if, if we want an analogy, it's one of these. A get-out-of-jail-free card um, from Monopoly. And so um, what it basically was, uh, to, to, this is very, uh, very much a summary, but then I'll, I'll talk about the history of indulgences in a second. But basically, it was a piece of paper given to you. Um, and so if I was uh, the, the person selling an indulgence, I would say, who wants this piece of paper? It says that you won't have to spend any time in hell. Um, anybody want one of these? And you would all be like, yeah, I want one of those. Sure, sweet. If it was really true, but which by the way, it wasn't true. The people were gullible. The people believed that if they bought this piece of paper from the religious leaders at the time, then they wouldn't have to spend any time in purgatory or hell. And so you would buy one of these things thinking that it was saving your soul or you'd buy one for a family member. I mean, who wouldn't want to buy the one for their mom or their little baby or their wife or a sister? Of course, it's like, yeah, I'll buy one on behalf of someone I love to get them out of purgatory, to get them out of hell. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. In a lot of ways, it was like fear-mongering and selling something on the basis of getting you very afraid of what would happen. And then at the magic, you know, this magic piece of paper will save you from all your problems. I think in some ways, has anybody ever rented a car? And you go in to rent the car and they're like, um, sir, would you like to buy the extra insurance? And you're like, nah, I don't need that. And then they're like, well, sir, what if, you know, and they, go, and they tell you this story of like, your car rolls over and you're dead on the street and your blood's everywhere. Don't you want the insurance? And you're like, yeah, I guess I'll take the insurance. Or those on, has anybody ever seen those OnStar commercials? If you have OnStar, I'm not, please don't be offended. But it's kind of the same idea of like fear mongering of like, you're in the middle of nowhere, in the desert. Your car just rolled over three times. You and your family are bleeding to death in the car. But... At the touch of a button, this little OnStar button that's on your uh, what, rear view mirror, mirror, at the touch of a button, the police will show up and everything will be fine. And so don't, I mean, don't you want on, you see these commercials and like, dude, I got to have that. What if I'm in the car and my whole family's bleeding to death and it's rolled over and we're in the middle of the desert? And then you, you, you begin to think like, wait, how does OnStar work? Well, OnStar just works by using Verizon Wireless's networking services um, to, to provide basically a cell phone that can only call 911. And so it's like, wait, why do I need to pay $70 a month when I have a cell phone in my pocket? Or did you know that any cell phone, even if it doesn't have service, will still call? Like you don't have, a, have to have a calling, you have to have service, you, but you don't have to have a calling plan. You can still call 911. So basically you're paying $70 a month for something that you could just throw in your glove compartment. Anyways, if you got OnStar, I was, I was researching, I was like, what's a product that people sell based upon fear? This idea of like, at a magical button, you, you will be saved from this, saved from suffering. And I thought of OnStar, and so if you have OnStar, or you work for OnStar, sorry. Um, let's move on. Uh, so here is a picture 
this is this picture was done in uh, 1530s. Uh, it's a German uh, black and white wood carving of uh, indulgences being sold. And so I imagine someone was carving this picture on the basis of what they saw. And what you see is a table with money, and someone is coming to buy an indulgence. And there's the Catholic Church and the cross in the background. And this happened all throughout Europe to the late Middle Ages of the the Catholic Church. And by the way, I'm not just pointing my finger at the Catholic Church and saying, oh, look how evil they were. Look at how bad, you know, how they took advantage of people. No, I'm saying in all of us, every single one of us, me included, there's something inside of us that, that would want to bend the situation to our own profit. There's something in every single one of us that, that wants to say something in such a way that looks be- makes ourselves look better. There's, there's something in every single one of us that, that would want to profit from someone who would believe whatever we told them. There's something inside of every single one of us that I think would would take advantage of a gullible person if the situation presented itself and and we could make it, we could kind of spin it to make it into a a good situation. So I'm not just pointing my finger at the Catholic Church and saying, well, the evil they did. No, I think there's there's something in all of us that, that can that can go that direction. But anyways, the history of indulgences, because you might be thinking, yeah, that's evil. That's bad. Like selling pieces of paper that say your sins are forgiven, that you don't have to spend time in hell for money. Like who thinks of that? Like how did that begin to happen? Well, it began to happen through this, I think, kind of this process of these thoughts and ideas evolving. And so I'll quickly go through like maybe how this idea evolved of selling this evil of selling indulgences. Um, But it kind of begins with the, uh, the idea of confession. Um, and I grew up um, Catholic, and so I went through my first communion, and after my first communion, I did my first confession. I went into a little room, kind of like this one, and there was a priest there, uh, like through like kind of like a little, like I guess it was like a window pane, but it had like, I don't know, so I couldn't really see him, but he could see me kind of thing. And I went in, and I would say, uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. And he said, yeah, what, you know, basically, what, what sins have you committed? What do you want to uh, confess? And this is like elementary school, so I just listed off, like, yeah, I beat up my brother. I don't listen to my mom. I stole some cereal. And, you know, all these sins that I committed. And so the priest says, you, you know, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, you now need to do penance. And penance is this idea that, that I think is a very biblical idea, but um, that we don't really practice, I don't think, for the most part in the Protestant church in, in the, such a way that the Catholics do. But penance is this idea of kind of if you're really sorry for something you did, then, um, then you'll do something about it. You won't just say, hey, God, my bad, and then just keep doing the same sin. It's like, no, you, you will go and, and, and sin no more. You, like if you took someone's cell phone and you made a call and then you're like laughing and joking around, you accidentally threw it on the ground and it broke. You're like, man, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I broke your cell phone. And the, your friend's like, yeah, are you really sorry? And you're like, yeah, I'm so sorry. He's like, well, will you help me buy a new one? And you're like, nah, I'm not that sorry. It's like, well, then you're really not sorry then if you're not willing to do something about it. And so this idea of penance is this idea of doing something about the sin that you committed. And so this idea of, you know, of not sinning anymore or turning your life around or in the Catholic church, they, they would say, like when I did my first confession, it was Okay, you're forgiven of your sins, but go into the other room. And I think I had to say 10 Hail Marys and 15 Our Fathers. And those are two different prayers. So you said them 15 and then 10 different times. And then that was my act of penance um, because 
that, 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 that somehow a sin, a confession, and this act of penance of somehow doing something different or, or giving up something on behalf of the sin you committed, I think is a biblical idea. There's the story in John chapter 8. Here's a painting of it. This, this painting's in the, the Getty Center in Los Angeles. I got to see it. And it, it's, it was painted in the 1700s by this guy named uh, Valentin Baloney. That's his name pretty sweet. Anyways, uh, I painted this picture, and you could see, like, if you, you probably can barely see it anyways, but the brightest things in this, in this painting are both the women, the, excuse me, the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus there on the right-hand corner, and there's this connection between them because they're painted with the similar colors, and they're looking at each other. This idea that, that the, the sinner and God are connected because the sinner seeks forgiveness from God, and God um, forgives the sinner. But at the end of this passage, in John chapter 8, he tells the woman, um, I do not condemn you, but the last line is, go and sin no more, or go, leave this life of sin, in different translations. And so the, it's this idea of, yeah, you know, God, if you, forget, if you ask for forgiveness, God will forgive you, but then it's like, well, if you're truly sorry, you will, you will go and you will sin no more. You will, you will give up something. You will do something in light of the fact that you displeased God. And so this evolution of, you know, throughout the Middle Ages of the church, um, confessing sins uh, to a priest. And by the way, uh, we, we as Protestants would say, yeah, we don't need to confess our sins to a priest. We confess it to God. But there is this biblical idea of confessing your sins to one another. You know, James five sixteen says, confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed, right? So it's not this, cra- I mean, we often like point our fingers at the Catholics and say they're crazy, you know, and we, we would point to this idea of, you know, confessing your sins to a priest. You don't need to do that. That's correct. You don't need to do it. Um, to a priest, you can confess your sins directly to God, but it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad thing that they do that. But anyways, you can see this this order, this progression of thought, this maybe evolution of confessing your sins, doing penance, and maybe what if the penance involved giving money? I mean, that's not too crazy. This, you know, baby steps, uh, basically we're baby stepping our way into how indulgences happened. But let's say you um, sinned against God, and then a priest, you confessed your sin to a priest, and he said, um, you know, go say 10 Hail Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers as penance, and maybe give some extra money this week to the church as a sacrifice for the sin that you committed. I mean, that's not too crazy, right? We could see how this baby step is, 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 is moving. And then maybe um, the church would give you um, a piece of paper um, as a receipt for the act of penance that you did, whether that penance was reading the Bible or praying or prayer or giving up something or giving up money, the church would give you a certificate and you would get this piece of paper. So you could see these baby steps towards this idea of paying for, for your sin, literally paying money for the sin that you committed, getting a piece of paper. And by the way, pieces of paper back in the Middle Ages were awesome and amazing to have because paper was rare and if it was ha- if you had a piece of paper with writing on it the printing press wasn't yet around you know we're, we're very close but it wasn't yet around so it was handwritten if it was signed by somebody it's like my goodness it was signed by a bishop or signed by the pope himself the vicar of rome and vicar means you know a, a, someone who could stand in the place of rome or stand in the place of jesus himself and so just imagine having a piece of paper 
in the Middle Ages with the Pope's signature on it or something, you would just think, oh, of course my sins are resolved. Of course I would pay any amount of money to have this piece of paper that said I did my penance, that my sins have been forgiven. And it's not that crazy to think that in the next step, the next thing that led to such a horrible thing happening in the Middle Ages is basically just people's thoughts of, I need to get enough money together so that I could pay for this piece of paper that says my sins are resolved or says that my mom or my relative's sins are resolved so that I can get them out of hell. Like I can get them out of purgatory. This Catholic Church idea of the, this place you go after death, um, this, you have to get purging of your sins and there's fire there and it's a pretty bad place to be in before you're allowed to go to heaven. But anyways, all this money pouring into Rome, pouring into the church in the Middle Ages, paid for something. Do you know what it paid for? It paid for a really, really sweet building. And then, so if we're thinking about the ends and the means, so the means would be money being collected from indulgences. The end, what got built with all this sweet cash, was something called St. Peter's Basilica. And uh, my friend Kim White was just there, and she sent me this picture. She, she took it herself. Has anybody else ever been to Rome and seen St. Peter's Basilica? If you've seen it and walked up, when I was in high school, I got to, to see it. You walk up and you see this awesome dome in this huge um, area where um, it's just, you know, there's nothing. It's flat and this church just rises up out of the ground and it's awesome and it's beautiful and it's this representation that heaven um, and God's creation, the things that we can create here on earth are just a shadow of the things that God can create and the awesomeness that he, of who he is and the representations and these symbols of the beauty of God. And if you go in this building and you take a right, you will see this statue. Um, it's called the Baita. It's the Italian word for pity. And Michelangelo carved this um, right around the 1400s, 1498 through 1500. It took him two years. He took this big solid block of marble. And this, by the way, is a life scale. It's a one-to-one scale. So it's life size. He, out of one singular piece of marble, carved this beautiful statue. I mean, you look at it and you're like, oh, it's is that actually marble? Is that actually stone? I could see Jesus' veins. I could see his hair. That's amazing that someone would carve this out of stone. And you look at it and you begin to, you know, you think, wow, someone created this. Then you begin to think about this is the mother of God holding Jesus after he died. And the beauty of this and your, you know, your thoughts and your emotions standing there looking at this life, um, life scale of this statue. And you're just like, my God, this is beautiful. This is awesome. It's so amazing that we have this statue that was uh, it's carved in the 1500s and it's still standing today and it'll stand for thousands of years more for people to come and to, to look at it, to, to, to worship God while maybe looking at or concentrating on this symbol this statue uh, of Jesus after his death, after his suffering. And then down the road is the Sistine Chapel, which Michelangelo also painted. And, um, and, and in this scene is the, the, the famous, you know, this one fresco of uh, God and Adam here, the creation scene in this very famous, almost iconic image of God creating Adam. And we look up at the ceiling and we just marvel at the beauty of this person's creation, which is, of course, a representation of God's creation and how awesome and beautiful it was. And all this stuff, all these buildings, all these stones, all these statues, all these paintings were paid for with, guess what? The indulgence money that came in 
in the Middle Ages. And so we can think about this great end, you know, of having this building that houses, supposedly, and maybe it actually does, houses St. Peter's bones themselves. And it's this place where, oh, the actual bones of St. Peter are buried there. And all the beauty that surrounds this place is a representation of God's beautiful creation on this earth. And we think about, oh, that's what, you know, that's where all the money went. I guess it's okay that that happened. And then you're like, wait, no, people paid for a piece of paper because they thought that piece of paper was their salvation. And so this last point of today um, that, that I'll kind of leave you with before we conclude, I have a video clip as well to show you in a second, but just this idea of the abuses of the indulgences. And um, this guy was one of the big salesmen of um, indulgences back in the day. And his name is John uh, Johann Tetzel, a German guy. And he was amazing at going town to town and selling indulgences, selling pieces of paper with bishops or the popes themselves, signature on this piece of paper saying your sin was absolved. And I think we have, yeah, the sweet quote. We always have a sweet quote. If you're taking notes on, we call it the skillet today. It has a Uh, a picture of a skillet on the skillet. How awesome is that? But anyways, um, at the bottom is the sweet quote, which actually isn't too sweet because it's actually kind of like, gosh, that's what was said. That's horrible. Um, But John Tetzel, the seller of indulgences, said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Isn't that cute? Let me read it in the German for you. The old German is, wenn die Munz im Kasselen klingt, die Leaning in dem Himmel springt. I probably have no business uh, saying that in German, but I thought it, it rhymes. And so, oh, cute. How, what a cute saying. As soon as, you know, you put a coin in the, a coffer as a box, as soon as you put the coin in the box, a soul from purgatory springs. Isn't that a great idea? And if you were in the Middle Ages, you would have believed it. Because, why? You didn't have a Bible. You, when you went to church, it was in Latin. Or if you asked somebody what they thought, they would just tell you what they thought. And they had no Bible to tell you what the Bible actually said. It was just all, yeah, of course, the, of course it works like that because this guy is telling me it works like that. And he's a really great salesman. Maybe as good of a, a salesman as um, this guy, um, Sham Wow guy. <laughs> it's like you don't really need a slap chop. You don't really need a Sham Wow. But he's such a good salesman. You're like, yeah, I do need a slap chop. How, I don't know. How, do, how, how have I been cutting things before? With the knife? I need a slap chop. I, can't, I need a sham wow. I'm all wet. I need something to dry me off. Anyways, so um, I'm going to show you a, a video clip from this movie. Has anybody ever seen this movie? It's called Luther. It came out in 03. It's probably one of my top 10 movies because it's about a guy in history who will talk about, uh, will we talk about him next week? No, we won't be here. We'll talk about him the week after. Uh, We'll talk about Martin Luther because um, he is kind of the one who at least gets credit for this. And and I think he should get credit for this main movement against the church at the time. And one of the things that really set him off was the selling of indulgences. Specifically, he really had to not literally fight with, but he fought in paper. And we have some of these letters with John Tetzel. I'm going to show you this video clip of John Tetzel um, um, selling indulgences to a crowd. And then I'm going to give you the discussion question. So if if you want to begin to think about it, this idea of, okay, what if you could maybe time travel back to the the 1500s um, and, and be there in this crowd 
with John Tetzel saying you need to buy an indulgence, what would you say to the crowd? What would you say to the people around you? And you're time traveling back so you could take all your knowledge of the Bible and what you believe about God and you know, how the church should work with you. And so imagine yourself in uh, this crowd. All right, you ready for the video clip? It's one of my favorite movies, so it's, it's pretty good. So here, I think it has, a, it has like a little, uh, it, the beginning's not right, but then it'll play. So bear with me. All right, it should be playing, though. Good people of Uteberg, have you ever burned your hand in the fire? Even one finger made raw by the flame will torment you throughout the night. Is it not so? Imagine then, your entire body burning. Not for one sleepless night, not for a week, but for all eternity. Are we to be spared the fires of damnation on the judgment day? Tonight, your Pope, the Vicar of Christ, sends you a gift. A gift to save you from such fires. A special indulgence granted for the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome. Where the bones of the apostles lie mouldering, exposed to wind and rain, desecrated by wild animals. Take heed the words of your Holy Father who says, Lay a stone for St. Peter's and you lay the foundation for your own salvation and happiness in heaven. How? With this indulgence. When? Tonight. And only tonight. Seek the Lord while he is near. Here is your raft. Take hold. Does anybody else get mad when they see that? It's like that? really happened. Like, this is a reenactment of a real historical figure, John Tetzel, in a real German village, selling indulgences. And, and I don't know if he said those exact words, but we have some of his writings, and we have things that he said, something similar to that effect, that you would buy this piece of paper for your salvation, and the money would go to St. Peter's so that the bones of the apostles aren't outside rotting, so that we can enclose them in beauty. And so, it's this this, this horrible evil that happened in the Middle Ages, especially towards the late Middle Ages, that, that w- would cause someone like Martin Luther, who we'll talk about later this month, to say, no, the Bible doesn't teach indulgences. The Bible teaches grace, and it's a gift from God. And specifically, Martin Luther would study the book of Romans and teach the people in Wittenberg about the Romans and then nail his 95 theses against the, the, the church and why it was doing all these horrible things. And so I want to kind of conclude with um, this idea of, um, you know, what would you do, uh, what would you say if you could time travel back to Tetzel's crowd? What would you say to the people around you? And I, we're going to end maybe how we ended a couple of weeks ago, which is I'm just going to kind of conclude in prayer right now. And if you want to 
keep cont- if you're in a good dis- discussion about this, then you can talk for a little while. Um, and as you wrap up, you're, you're free to go. You're dismissed. But I would encourage you to stay for just a little while. We're, we're ending a little early. And so to, to hash this out, I mean, what is it that, that you can really stand on? And, and by the way, I think that the standing place should be the Bible. And so what scriptures, you know, come to mind when, when, when you would combat, you know, if you had to talk to Tetzel and say, listen, this isn't right. You're not doing what is good. Here's actual scripture and, and the, the basis by which what you're doing is horribly wrong and you're taking advantage of people. And, and so we need to stand on scripture. And in this month to come, we'll talk about some of the scriptures that Luther used to attack the, the practice of indulgences. But that's for another time. And so discuss this question um, after we pray. So let's close. Jesus, we do worship you. We, we come before you, and, and God, we, we grieve on the behalf of those that, that went before us that were, that were tricked into a, a cheap salvation of just buying it. And the, this, this idea that we could somehow just pay money and then go continue sinning, and this piece of paper would save us. God, we believe in you, that you are a good a mighty, a faithful God, and we give you our lives. God, we understand that this gift of grace is, is a free gift, and we just need to turn to you and, and worship you and live for you, and, and, and we res- will receive all the joys of the new earth and the new heaven. And so, God, we worship you this morning. We love and praise you. Everybody said? Amen. All right, stick around, discuss this question. I think it's pretty cool. Peace.